0: Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Tara Barrett, and today's guest is Chris Reedzik Chris is an interpreter with Parks Canada. You can find him dressed as a lighthouse keeper and immersed in the 19th century at Cape Spear Lighthouse National Historic Site. He also develops interpretive programs for provincial historic sites of Newfoundland and Labrador, and has created work for Hearts Content Cable Station, Mock Begar- Begar Plantation, Portmore Lighthouse, Cupid's Cove Plantation, and the Commissariat. Hello, Chris, and welcome to the show.
1: Hi. Hi, that intro made me feel as though, uh, whew, huh, okay. Do I don't have to work today? Do I? <laughs> no, this is just a bit of fun. What, what silly costume do I have to get in and uh, <laughs> uh, pretend I'm in some other time period today?
0: <laughs> Actually, uh, something that Dale suggested that I perhaps should ask you is uh, you know to do a little bit as a lighthouse as the lighthouse keeper at Cape Square. Oh, oh, he did he, ask me. That. He, he did. He did. <laughs>
1: the, the lighthouse keeper that I that I often dress as is the first keeper out at Cape Spear, who was Emmanuel Ware. He was a Scot, and when I started uh, uh, last spring as the costumed interpreter out there, uh, there was some discussion as if I would try a Scottish accent or not. But but, but really, I I play it as a hybrid between a first-person and a uh, third-person interpretation, so... Uh, I am the lighthouse keeper. I am Emmanuel Ware, but I do not play as such the character, <laughs> which then allows you to flip between current questions uh, and representations of the past.
0: And so how did you kind of get your start in first-person interpretation?
1: I come to interpretation through a theater and education background. I've uh, been building theater and, and teaching theater to, to uh, uh, youth and adults for going on two decades now. And It started to be that when searching for stories to represent, some of the better stories seemed to come from our actual history itself. It seemed a natural uh, line for someone who's interested in theater. It takes place uh, often in the environment or in immersive fashions to then move into a setting where you're telling really good stories, which are actually based in fact and truth, and in an actual location that is uh well, closely tied or or essential to the story itself. So those are the, 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 the steps kind of where we work, work that way.
0: And how do people usually respond to these kind of first-person narratives and stories about the particular places?
1: I find that visitors really engage in someone in costume, and and I think that's why we're seeing what is probably a return to more of this costume interpretation. You uh, see someone dressed to in what is often uh, odd or for our time period or silly uh, if, uh, clothing uh, it immediately allows them to let down their guard and to enter into some type of discussion with you there's a lot of places that that, that do, do that 100% commit to role playing interpretation where, where I would put on the lighthouse keeper's costume for example and I, I would only exist in the mid 19th century uh, perhaps I would speak with a Scottish accent, uh, and, and be mystified by any sort of questions or involvement that are outside of that time period. Uh, this this is a little bit inhibiting uh, in terms of actually meeting the needs of of visitors. Once once you have ensnared them with your costume <laughs> uh, and some allusion to the past, uh, then of course the, the this then enters into discussions. Uh, and questions and comparisons with our, cu- our current day, so there needs to be that that hybrid, I think.
0: And so, what kind of questions do people generally ask? Is it about is it about kind of the past, or is it about you know how it relates to today and how things have changed over the years?
1: My own personal interest is is always to try to draw it into personal connections of today. O- often in in the lighthouse uh, at Cape Spear, people are interested in the artifacts themselves. Uh, they might have questions about uh, what is this particular device, how was that used in the household or or where did they get uh, uh, the the sperm whale oil for the oil lamp that was the original lighthouse mechanism and and in answering those questions, you can often tie it into ideas that uh, really apply to today um and that particular living situation there and I guess it's similar to a lot of lighthouse houses in these early days, they were incredibly self-sufficient. And even there uh, on this rocky point of land, jutting out into the North Atlantic, they they had to maintain uh, quite large gardens to to sustain a a substantial family out there. And uh, we've planted a garden at our house, and and I think you're seeing a real kind of movement back towards uh, gardening, Uh, people starting to keep chickens again. Uh, Right now, the spring is coming and we have everyone's cracked about tapping their maple trees. And so I like to to sort of reflect and help people reflect upon uh, ideas like that, self-sufficiency or or, uh, uh, communication or commerce and our own perceptions of that today versus how it was in the past and similarities and differences.
0: I like that you mentioned the maple tapping. I, I have I, uh, I, I had tapped my parents' one. They have two out in front of their yard, and I was like, "Can I come over and tap your trees?" They, you know.
1: Is it working for you?
0: Yeah, it's working surprisingly <laughs> well. And it kind of what kind of got me going was two of my cousins were tapping their trees, and they were going great. And I was like, "Okay, we got to try this cause
1: probably easier than importing molasses from uh, the Caribbean." Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Although, <laughs> you have no Although, salt cod to trade for it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Although I guess at the time there wasn't that many maples to tap, so importing molasses probably made sense. <laughs>
1: made sense, yeah. <laughs> but
0: yeah, I like that you mentioned that sustainability because that is something that's that we are seeing in today's modern society. It's kind of that reflecting back to the past.
1: It, one of the reflections I really like to make is when people are trying to understand things, uh, something like the lighthouse mechanism, which which. Uh, when it first goes into the Cape Spear Lighthouse, th- this, this, some would say this is the most advanced piece of machinery in the entire province. And, and so to try to reflect to them how some advancements, and there's a lot of advancements, this mid 19th century time period, uh, uh, industrialization is going cracked and we're seeing new ideas and new advancements happening all the time. I, I try to reflect back to particularly, uh, uh, kind of middle-aged generation, what it was like when the first cell phone came around, and would you have imagined where we are today and the capacity of it? A- and 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 to try to then imagine, before cell phones, uh, when I was a boy, was I thinking about texting my friend to tell them I was going to be late? No. That, that wouldn't have occurred to me. Or, or uh, uh, you would just go out in the woods. You'd just go for a hike. You wouldn't Worry about having your phone in case something terrible happened. And and so this idea of what are we currently living without that will someday be essential? Or are we living with things right now that were unimaginable that we now deem to be essential? And do we need them? These are questions I I particularly like.
0: And what do, uh, like, I guess, what do you, kids of today kind of respond to that with because I imagine I mean most kids have cell phones and they, they've they grown up with that now like the kids that I, I guess are coming through because I mean cell phones have been around now for you know well for a yeah, long yeah, time technically but like but in the terms of
1: the, ones, the, the, the smartphone we're probably yeah. talking 15 years yeah. for going on now a, a lifetime yeah so what are kids kind of
0: responding to that with like I, how do they how do they kind of take that and think about it themselves uh,
1: with, with the children the easiest way to to kind of get through to them the difference between uh, a life of the past from this time period, this 19th, uh, mid-19th century time period, and today is through exhibiting the difficulty it is to do simple tasks. And I find this one is, is more effective for, for the younger generation. And just to, to, to demonstrate to them what it might take to do laundry for instance, and how you need to fetch water from the well, and you're going to need to get wood for the fire, and then you need to heat up that water, and then have you made your lye soap yet? <laughs> Let's hope your soap worked well, when you made the soap, and then we're using the scrub board, and then now you have this wet uh, this wet pile of laundry. How are you going to dry it? Are you going to hope for a good day on clothes, or are you going to hang it in front of the fire? And to compare that to how easy it is to do a chore now, and you tuck it in the machine, boom, you press go with the button. There you go. You go have your espresso and watch some YouTube, and it's done for you. And and with the children, you present this idea, and I think they get a better reflection of what it means to help around the house and how simple their lives are now. And so that's sort of the angle I tend to use uh, with, with the children out there. Um, and the 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 adults like that too. Uh, after a little lesson like that, they get the idea that yes, a ten year old can throw their laundry in the machine and press go and put in a bit of uh, washing detergent. This is not a <laughs> a giant effort. And the kids go, okay, I think I think I can help a little bit more. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so you also uh, in your in your bio there and in talking to you, you also said you. Uh, you developed some interpretive programs for Provincial Historic Sites. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, those projects uh, came to my attention uh, and I developed a relationship with with Provincial Historic Sites with um, my own company, uh, Trunk Lane Creative, uh, which is currently only myself, Uh, but but at the time there was a a couple other members who have since gone on to do other things. Um, Back in 2010, 2011, uh, there was a a call for proposals to develop some of these projects. Um, And and since that time, I've been fortunate enough to develop a partnership with them and and have created uh, numerous projects, um, uh, Cupid's Cove, uh, some of them you mentioned in in the introduction. Uh, Those have been neat because they're, they're, they're special event projects. Usually they're commemorating Partic- uh, anniversaries of particular historical events. Um, uh, we began doing, uh, creating an interpretation for the anniversary of the first English settlement in the newfound land, uh, Cupid's Cove. Um, and, and that that piece, there's not a lot of budget for delivery of these pieces, so, so they have to be built very streamlined, uh, often with only one interpreter. And And flexible in a style that that they can meet a large group, a smaller group, a younger group, an older group, and how do you do that? And I think that's probably one of the attractions that I found that brought me into interpretive programming development was these challenges. Like, I'm an artist when it it all sort of boils down to it, and I I do look at art making as problem-solving, and, and that might be my favorite part of it, whether it's you're working on a drawing and why isn't the composition right, or you're working on a song, what else does it need, uh, where should it go? Uh, you're working on a play, how do you get to, uh, uh, how, how do you resolve this conflict? It's all about problem solving. And the interpretation, I find that you, you're sort of given this really limited palette, it has to be flexible, uh, one person has to deliver it, it needs to be in this small time frame. Uh, and I really enjoyed that challenge, um, this this Cupids Cove one in in, in particular we did something completely w- what I think is is kind of unique about it it's it's a card game it, it, it's a it's a card game of chance there is um this this everyman colonist character the settler we call him <clears throat> and the, and the settler he sets the scene of what things were like in Newfoundland and in 1610 and then uh, he presents that early settlement was was a game of risk. It, it was it was death, or it was mm, clinging to survival. And that these early settlers really didn't know. It was like going to the moon. They, they, they really didn't know what to expect. They could predict. They had lots of information, of course, from all the migratory fishing, fishermen, but they really weren't quite sure uh, how things would be. And you think, like right now, what are we, April 4th? We have another snowstorm out there. Uh, if there was... Not, you, if you didn't have that information, how would you know to prepare for yet another month of winter? <laughs> another month of winter. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, this game, the, so we developed this, this game of cards, this game of chance. And the audience actually pulls from this, this deck of, of, of handmade, unique cards that depict um, uh, uh, provisions that the settlers brought with them. They, they, they pick a card, and each card launches uh, a story, a monologue. And then at the end of the monologue, it is either a positive story or a negative story. And so you either gain points towards survival or points towards your demise. And as the as the game or the interpretation progresses, you could pick two cards, you could pick four cards, you could pick five cards, and you play... And with each one, you get this story, and you're not sure what the story is going to be. So, a collection of, and these are actual stories from the diaries of uh, of Kraut and and uh, and Guy in the early days. So, you take these actual stories and then lay it out uh, in, in meeting these uh, this limited palette we discussed, solving this problem of how you have it flexible for time, for people, for 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 visitors, um, and then and then each person comes out with this unique. Piece of theater at the end, or this unique interpretive experience.
0: And can you talk a little bit about how you, uh, I guess, research like the stories behind the places that you go? Like, how did you did you, did you go through Guy's diary? Did you? How yeah. Did you do, yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, well, uh, Kraut's diaries, uh, in particular, who who was a, a assistant to Guy, uh, are, are 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 quite detailed, particularly for this three three year period at the very beginning, and. And there's 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 factoids often in in these historical documents that you could if you were a theater artist you you, you would dream them up and you'd pen them into a play and then you'd look at it and say oh geez, no one's gonna, going to go to buy that uh, we built a piece for provincial historic sites out at Point à uh, Labrador about the wreck of the HMS Rally that was uh, 1922 this 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 vessel it sinks just off the off the lighthouse, off the point, of point Moore, and oh, Provincial Historic Sites. Chris Martin, he's a historic officer there, uh, gave us the diary of one of the naval officers on board, a very English uh, naval officer on, on board, and it was it, it, in some cases it was an hour and hour account of this incident in the days leading up. The, the actual incident itself of the sinking and then the days that followed and so this is in his own words and of, of course he, he deals with the sinking of this vessel how they dealt with getting uh, getting all the uh, all the the the, the, man, the 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 well the people on the vessel off uh, how long it took to sink what caused the, the the incident what the weather was like all the things you'd expect in the diary but a through line that goes through the whole thing is the guy's got a toothache (laughs) and, and it's his personal diary. So he complains incessantly about this, this toothache. And here, here it is. This, his vessel is sinking. It's like, Oh my tooth. And and he keeps complaining about this, this, this toothache and how he's going to deal with this toothache. And, and, Oh, you know, we, we've, everyone has been safely put into tents on land and oh but my tooth is killing me (laughs) and if you were to dream that up you you would probably end up that would probably end up on the cutting room floor as something that would be impossible or or infeasible or or unbelievable and there it is in the actual writing this improbable and ridiculous and incredibly entertaining human perspective the officers even stop as the HMS rally is sinking and, and retire to the galley to have a cup of tea.
0: <laughs> as the boat sinks. As the boat
1: sinks. <laughs> so they, they've, gotten, uh, they've gotten the entire crew off the vessel, and it's just the officers left, and so they have a cup of tea.
0: So much, kind of like how you picture the Titanic, you know, where, yeah, the, where the musicians <laughs> are playing, kind of like that.
1: I th- I think so. Uh, uh, and now that boat did sink uh, quite slowly, and they were right offshore. But what a wonderful little vignette to 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 put into an interpretation that is actually true.
0: And so, did you incorporate that toothache? Is that something? Oh, that we did.
1: Yeah, the toothache, the toothache went all went all through that. That 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 piece is is also we also built for one. Interpreter to deliver. We try to build in much like the cards, these, these these interactive components. I think that that's a that's a key difference between theater and interpretation. Is is you have the opportunity to really involve the visitors. The visitors are part of the interpretation, as opposed to in theater, you're an audience. I mean, there's so, there's very much audiences over there kind of kind of idea where visitors are we're within the visitors. The visitors are all around us. The visitors are free to ask questions. You, you're, it's a dialogue. So the, the the playing cards in that that Cupid's piece, the settlers' game, work in in that fashion. And this piece, I'm talking about, which was entitled "The Wreck," and, and you can see how much of a theater person I am. I, I am. I still talk about them as pieces, <laughs> but but they are very much theatrical uh, interpretations. Uh, These ones for provincial historic sites, particularly, um, as we talked about, my Parks work is a little bit uh, uh, different, one on one, often, and and of course. Uh, mostly primarily based around the questions of the visitors. But back to this piece, uh, which is called The Wreck, about the sinking of the rally. We, at the beginning of the show, under everyone's chair is a flashlight. And and each of these flashlights has has a cutout on them so that as the, the story is unrolling, the audience uses these flashlights to animate the story, shining... These lifeboats up on uh, a giant piece of sailcloth, or uh, fires up onto the cliff, and tents and this sort of thing. So, so they're actively involved in recreating that story with us.
0: That must be quite interesting, because I guess that makes every every reenactment or every interpretation of that different because of the audience. So that's it. How does that play into things? Like, if the audience do. You, Do you get different reactions from different audiences? And how does that uh, change how you interpret your character or the story that you're telling?
1: I think, yeah, very much. Like, I think that's the goal in interpretation to make the experience your experience as the visitor, not my experience as the presenter or the interpreter. And that this is where this sort of flexibility, adaptability comes into play. And and, and this being probably the primary difference I see in, in, in that sort of th- in straight theater, if you will, or interpretation, or first-person interpretation, or often this sort of mixture between first and third, is that, yeah, the visitor is driving the train, they're creating their own experience, and that you you're a facilitator in that, and you're bringing to the table uh, the impetus, or, or the, the, the material upon which they can react to, to inspire questions, to inspire their own participation in uh, the discourse.
0: I think that's a, that's a wonderful way to present history to people who maybe haven't learn that particular part of the history of Newfoundland Labrador or like no it's just a really interesting way to get people to interact with history which is perhaps not often what people think about history they kind of might think of it as static and in, in the past so it's good to get people thinking about it in the present day
1: yeah and is it it isn't static is it like the more that research is done into a particular topic the the history is fascinating because there's so many rabbit holes to to go down you 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 begin uh, by explaining how how a lighthouse mechanism of the mid-19th century works, and uh, before you know it, you're talking about the oil for these lamps, and where does the oil come from, and then you're talking about the sperm whale hunt. Then you start having to talk about the exchange of goods across uh, the Atlantic. It, 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 the, the, everything is so in- incredibly tied to each other. And then, of course, we don't know everything, that there's so much research that can still be done that that there's always more pieces to acquire and so so in a sense uh, yeah it, it, i think the word you use was uh, it, it it was it's not static uh, it, it's malleable in a sense and, and one would hope malleable in keeping with the facts please nothing but the facts <laughs> <laughs> yes of course <clears throat> but now but now there are there is space, though, I think, for conjecture in some ways, too. And there are things that, that we might never know. And isn't it fun to present here are the facts, and, and here's the unknown, and what could have happened? What do you think? So I, I th- that kind of, a, it's not a fictionalized history, but maybe it's a, a, conjuncture, a conjectured history.
0: And that must be interesting because I imagine people, because of their own different past experiences, kind of bring their own view to it. So they might think something different than their neighbor right next to them about what would have happened because of their own personal past experiences and stuff.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it's quite interesting. Do you know uh, know the the name Cantwells? The the Cantwells are are the keepers who were at uh, Cape Spear almost for the entirety, everything but but pretty much a decade. There's a few years in, in the middle, too. They were the keepers of of the Cape Spear Light, and they have a they have an origins myth uh, uh, of how the first Cantwell uh, James comes to be the lighthouse keeper. And th- this is an interest. This is interesting because this th- this is a primary example of well o- over here are the facts, but then here's the story. And the story's been around for for almost two hundred years. I mean, like for a very long time. So is this, So the story is legitimate as a story. And part of history, even though there are untruths in it, but then the story is based off facts so here simultaneously simultaneously, you have two pieces of history: one is true, one is false, but because it 's been around for so long, the false story is true history so so you present you can present the two t- together, and then the audience can be uh, you can enjoy the myth or the visitors, you can enjoy the myth. And then deconstruct it with the facts, and then take home what you want.
0: Yeah. I gotta say that's one of the things I love about folklore: is that it doesn't matter to me whether or not it's true. It matters to me why people tell those stories. You know, it's the it's the stories behind the stories that I want to know. Like, why would somebody? Yeah. So, what is what is this Cantwell myth? What is the what is the story behind the story? Well,
1: uh, the, the first keeper who who I dress as uh, Emmanuel, where he's he's there for ten years, close to the end of his ten years is where we begin this this Cantwell origins myth um, uh, Newfoundland in this time period had yet to have any visit of any royalty at all um, yet we 're very much becoming a nation uh, eighteen thirty three we acquire uh, representative government so there's there's very much sort of this nationalist feeling in Newfoundland uh, we're establishing ourselves as us and and so we 're well overdue. <laughs> for for some type of of of, of grand uh, uh, royal acknowledgement, the the Prince of the Netherlands, uh, Hendrik the Seafarer, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, was what he was known by, because he did these these grand sea adventures. And he decides to come to Newfoundland. Here in, in St. John's, this creates this huge buzz. Uh, we prepare for Hendrik's arrival. Um, uh, there's a parade route built with. Uh, 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 spruce boughs, uh, in giant archways, there's, there's a, a, a grand feast, and, and he is pre- we're prepared to fet him for, for several days. The day of his arrival, Newfoundland is socked in with fog. Now, we, we have harbor pilots today, um, but in the mid-19th century, of course, this was a much more important role. There, the, the entrance to the Narrows was quite difficult, uh, so there's uh, numerous harbour pilots and this man called James Cantwell was one of the harbour pilots so on this foggy day the, the Dutch prince is sailing in in the fog and, and all the harbour pilots are sent out to find him and bring his vessel safely into harbour and James Cantwell finds him and, and he, he is, the, he is the, the one who valiantly uh, and with courage navigates uh, the prince's vessel through the harbour and befriends the prince and that uh, we fed the prince for several days. And Cantwell uh, escorts the vessel out of our tricky narrows. And the prince says, uh, "You, sir, are a good man. What can I give you?" And he points at the Cape Spear lighthouse and says, "I would like to be the keeper." And so he grants him the keepership for perpetuity of the lighthouse at Cape Spear. When you look at the facts, it wasn't a foggy day. <laughs> and although Cantwell very well uh, would have been this harbor pilot to navigate him in. What place would a Dutch prince have in he assigning did. the lighthouse and the character or the role, which I assume Emmanuel Ware is still very much a lighthouse keeper there and still very much alive. So there you have the facts that is probably it is not possible, but you have this legend that has existed and there's even a letter that supports it that the prince wrote which is still in the Cantwell family today. Now, mostly it's like a, a, a shout-out. It says, hey, you're a good fellow. <laughs> you're a good mariner. It, it's a letter of reference. But it has been signed by every royalty that's visited Newfoundland since that time period. So it's quite the, quite the artifact. So you have the artifact, you have the story, but then you have the facts. So probably more likely it's this letter and the hype around the prince's visit and that Cantwell was this harbour pilot did indeed give him a little bit of status. So when the time came that we needed a new ke- keeper, when Emmanuel Ware dies, uh, Can'twell is the man for the job. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm really glad that you told that story today. Um, if people want to see you this over the summer, where where will they look for you? Because we're coming to a close. So,
1: well, come on out to Cape Spear. Cape Spear. Yes, and, and uh, I I will be around uh, up in the lighthouse, uh, tending tending to my affairs. And yes, the se- the season opens mid May. We run straight on through to mid October, and uh, the 150th anniversary of Canada. So uh, the parks are free this year.
0: Well, that's right. Right. That's so it's a
1: good, a good, a good time to get out to all of our all of our great park sites across the province, both uh, uh, federal parks and and provincial.
0: Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Uh, thanks for having me.
0: Tara Barrett. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes.